Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast in your week in sports cars show with just bundles, bundles of joy from Britain. That being Graham Goodwin, editor of DailySportsCar.com. How are you, my man? Locked down is the answer. And uh, welcome, welcome wherever you are in the world. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Wherever you are, a beautiful afternoon, early evening here in the UK as we record this. You hopefully can hear the bird song in the background. We've had beautiful sunshine for a lot of courses Easter weekend. And yes, UK still in lockdown, but all is well here. Um, we're pushing on, uh, pumping out an awful lot of material at the moment, uh, both for Daily Sports Cars and coming races way as well, including a fabulous tale to do with Nick Tandy, uh, which I'm hoping you're going to be able to read on race over the next couple of days. Uh, but uh, no, we're good. How about uh, stateside? Things are well here. I'm struggling to believe there's a fabulous tale to tell about Nick Tandy. <laughs> I mean, just truly a, a horrible human being. But He is a terrible, terrible man. Maybe you found the one redeeming story that can be told about that lad. Uh, things are really, honestly, good. Going to have a story here on Monday, hopefully a little bit of an update on where we are at with Convergence, which we'd mm-hmm. like to call here on the Weekend Sports Cars, hashtag Pervergence, on where we're at with Pervergence rules, when we might be seeing those emerge. So, Got that going, threw up, I don't necessarily mean vomited, but depending on the writing quality, it could be an apt description. A, uh, a wee story about the 2007 Monterey American Le Mans Series race season finale, which featured the one and only appearance of full Jake liveried Corvettes, the Corvette wow, racing team. So, yep. yeah, we're just getting to the phase, Graham, in this shutdown where A... Uh, I'm really sick and tired of writing about esports. Uh, <laughs> there's not enough quote new news happening to really sustain racer on a daily basis. So the need here is to throw in uh, some retro pieces, some looking back at stuff pieces. So not every day, but just trying to come up with a balance. And I would imagine most motor racing media outlets are in a similar place. Okay, we can't go a hundred percent esports 100% news in we can't do anything normally so let's try and come up with a compromise a blend of things to amuse mm-hmm. and interest people so that's been uh, that's been life my man I, I will say one thing by the way we are uh, in similar mode at the moment and we're going through uh, some lighthearted feature stuff one of which is we're asking a range of current and past drivers um to contribute to a number of kind of strands, one of which is their best ever race car, their worst ever race car, and their dream car. We've had some fantastic stuff. Today's offering, by the way, Derek Bell uh, from uh, from Stephen Kilby, and Derek's uh, offerings are very good. One thing I would ask you to look out for, though, is the worst cars that are actually being uh, offered up. So uh, the way it works at the moment is with two cars I'm going to ask people to look out for in those features, one of which uh, the Two full-season drivers in that car, both named it, and both these guys have been around for quite some decades, both named it as the worst car they'd ever driven. And in the other case, uh, a two-car team at Le Mans, so six drivers. So far, we've interviewed three of them. Uh, we've got a fourth to come. And all three of them have named that car as being the worst. And they are from the same make. Wow. So, um, uh, well, I think they're, uh, how can I put it, not the finest efforts that we got from that make, 
but it did surprise me the how can we put this the the level of agreement that was found on the uh, qualities that were lacking in those two machines I love it. I did a number of the mostly worst car because favorite cars are easy. That's the fun and easy stuff. Uh, who cares about that from my mindset? I want to hear about the tragedies. So I did a bunch of those mid to late 2000s and did a couple few years ago. But it reminds me that I need to get back to that as well because I just love those conversations. One, I'm realizing now from a group Roundtable podcast I did with Stefan Johansson, Dario Franchitti, Hurley Haywood, and then unfortunately, and I do mean unfortunately, uh, CJ Wilson joined in about halfway through it and just ruined the rest of the conversation. But prior to that, you just reminded me that both Dario and Stefan Johansson, uh, I believe, named the same sports car as the worst they'd ever driven. So uh, I might need to go and pull that from that audio feature and clip that off for a a standalone piece. But yeah, my favorite, which I know has, I have in video done with David Brabham about the Panos. uh, What was it? Uh, LMP07. Would it it have been the LMP07? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, his may or may not have been one of the ones I was talking about. Oh yeah. Oh, his tale about he and Yen Magnuson being so miserable that they actually intentionally, uh, he intentionally, they conspired with how to end that misery at Le Mans in the car and <laughs> intentionally shut the motor off. You're right. That is one of the two cars that was named the LMP07 panels, but a broad church. I think we're working up towards our 20th of these that will be presented over the next coming weeks and beyond. You know, if we get back beyond lockdown, there's going to be plenty more of this to come. But, uh, yes, lots of tales and some real fun uh, with some of these guys, but the good, the bad, and the dream cars. Some of those are very interesting, too. Beautiful. Well, let's get rolling. You are, and I apologize, you uh, had a little audio difficulty, so we lost you a little bit there for a moment, but... Let's get going with our usual weekly offerings. You are the official selector of the categories we work through, that being IMSA, WEC slash ACO, European Le Mans Series, Asian Le Mans Series. Then we have fun and general. Sometimes we can we combine. I was about to mm-hmm. say confine. Maybe that's a correct word in these times. Yeah, sometimes but not in the we, correct context. Yeah. yeah, sometimes we confine fun in general. Where should we start first? And I have an idea, because I think there's some new newsy bits that might uh, kick off that category. Yeah, it's going to be Weck Aslam's uh, Elms and Echo, and you're absolutely right. The uh, the news breaking just before uh, we press record, or rather you did, to start this uh, edition uh, of the Week in Sports Cars is about the way in which Le Mans Race Week is going to be uh, put together. and A few key changes. We knew some of those already. Uh, one, of course, the date, so it will be back in the middle of September, uh, race week from the 13th to 20th of December. Uh, and we knew as well the new uh, Hyperpole uh, qualifying process is going to carry through. But, of course, we also knew there was going to be no test day. So waiting to find out what was going to be offered in terms of replacement track time for that. We now know that and that will be a five hour uh, free practice session on the Wednesday afternoon. 
leading into a second free practice session, uh, three hour of free practice session. So between those eight hours, the all the rookie drivers, uh, we don't obviously yet have a full entry list for the 124 hours, will need to complete 10 laps. The other change this year is beyond the um, the qualifying is that all drivers will have to complete eight and not five nighttime laps to be defined by the race organisers. But the procedural change beyond that, um, and I'm pretty sure that the, the genesis of this is going to be to do with the economies of scale uh, that are going to be applied, I'm sure, across the industry, is that scrutineering, which, uh, well, for as long as I can remember, and way longer than that, I'm sure, uh, used to be in the Place du Jacobin, in the centre of the city of Le Mans, in the shadow of the beautiful cathedral, and in more recent years in the Place de la République, uh, again in the centre of uh, Le Mans, will this year be at the circuit. So there will be no separate event uh, for the public. It will be um, uh, an event uh, that's, well, we, we don't know yet whether or not the gates are going to be opened for that for the public, whether or not you'll be allowed to get in uh, free of charge. But the the uh, the scrutineering and the administrative checks, which has always been, in my time, uh, something of a public event, will actually be at the circuit this time. It will help them, of course, with the cost of running that event. It means it's one fewer place they have to equip with all the uh, the gubbins, and it means that the logistics of t- the teams having to take the car from the paddock to Le Mans and back would also uh, be uh, dispensed with as well. But let's hope that's just for this year. Whether or not you enjoy the spectacle, um, let's hope that's just for this year because it is certainly part of the theatre of the Le Mans 24 Hours. Any thoughts, Graham, on where this might be held within the circuit that would accommodate the needs for both technical scrutineering of the vehicles driver scrutineering of their safety apparel and do it in a manner where it can be presented to the public uh something where fans can view spectate get autographs be in the background of the photos and such because this isn't this isn't the normal routine of quote rolling through tech this has always been a public production and we hope that every person that goes to uh place de jacobin or wherever you know wherever it's been in the past also buys a ticket and goes to the race but this has been the one free component where whether you're a race fan or not you can turn out witness this take part and not have to come out of pocket so curious if you have any insights there well, we have a little, uh, and what we know doesn't really help us. What we do know is that the cars will be inspected, it says, at the circuit. Now, we know where the technical inspection area is. That's at Pit Out on the right-hand side. If you're familiar with uh, the Le Mans, uh, that is below the Welcome Centre uh, by the staircase behind the uh, the uh, fence there. That is where cars would be scrutinized at the circuit. It's where the uh, scrutinizing bays are to there drivers, is some space i was going to say drivers to- will be going to the welcome center drivers we know will be asked to take their equipment to the welcome center so it's two separate uh, places that certainly will not be bringing the cars up into the village which is where the welcome center entry is so the it looks to me as if those two parts of that happening are being separated so remains to be seen we've not heard uh, there's no detail from what we've just shared with you in the initial 
release from the ACO. We know there's a further release going to come with more detail, including, by the way, confirmation of what the support package is going to be for the Le Mans 24 hours. And hopefully at that point, we'll get a few more details to help people decide whether or not they're going to be coming along for the weekend before the race. Uh, I hope they do, because it's going to be you know, an economy that's going to need support like every other. Ain't that the truth? Roof. All right, let's get to your Wackasm Elms echo mm-hmm. questions. Uh, starting with Kevin Payne. Hey, Kevin. So this question for you guys. With LMDH introduction being pushed back for IMSA, which thankfully has given more time for the FIWC and IMSA to agree in regulations, do you have any updates on what the timeline for that publication might be? Uh, well, it's actually the other way around, isn't it? It's WEC that's going to move back. So WEC was originally looking to introduce this at their winter timetable for September 2021. That's now going to be no earlier than March, so we can expect that to be Super Sebring in uh, 22, which means, of course, that the first iterations of these cars, the first opportunity, rather, for these cars to race is going to be Daytona 2022. So IMSA will race those cars first um what do we expect uh, beyond beyond that uh, any updates on what the timeline for publication now looks like <sighs> i got the impression there's less urgency being applied to that that they're placing a lot of faith in the multi uh, multiple rather bilateral conversations they're having with individual manufacturers uh, telephone conferences with multiple manufacturers uh, i gather near daily conversations between uh, the IMSA and uh, ACO uh, technical uh, uh, guys and girls and beyond that, uh, the powers that be in terms of the championship organisers. So they're heading in the right direction. Got the, I've certainly, having spoken to a couple of organisations that are involved in active assessment of these programmes, they're not as excited by the lack of absolute technical regulations as some of the fan base are on the internet, to be blunt. They're not that exercise. They feel pretty confident they know what they need to know at this stage. It won't be for much longer before they need to know more than that, of course. But certainly it is not stopping the likes of Porsche, we know already, um, from undertaking a full assessment of the viability of the uh, the opportunities that are uh, arising from it, in, in terms of you know who might well be involved, and that, I know that goes on to another couple of questions. I think the answer here is there'll be a lot of people taking a look. What we don't yet know is which way that pendulum is going to swing, and the reality is it could swing violently, violently in one uh, direction or marginally in the other. Violently in one direction. This is not a good time in the global economy at all. And it may very well be that some take the opportunity to say we're going to have to strip investments to the bone. That will only uh, only be a story we can tell when we get probably closer to the middle of the end of this year. Beyond that, the other possibility is when you're in financial and economic strife, what you then look to do is to place your products ahead of the rest of the pack in terms of your recovery planning. Sitting quiet, you're not doing anything about that 
very often is not the best policy. So maybe we may see some of those auto manufacturers deciding that this is the time to find something new and shiny uh, to get out there and tell the tale. That's going to depend, though, on the perception that those auto, uh, auto manufacturers and their marketing people have got of what kind of return on investment they'll get from the kind of numbers that are going to be required to put a prototype on track in IMSA, in the WEC, in aspects of or in totality, both. There we go. I'm going to say I moved one question from... Matt Hawkins, which was errantly placed in WEC Asimelm's ACO up in IMSA when we get to that. So let's see, where should we go next? Let's go to our pal, Daniel Summersgill. With the reversion of the WEC running over a calendar year, is a rethink in the point system required, Graham? He says, hashtag me personally would remove Lamar from the points and use the WEC points accumulated over the year to qualify for Lamar, i.e. top three in each class are in, all others are invited. Hmm. I like your um, way of thinking, Daniel. Shaking it up. Uh, I, I absolutely think it's a it's a healthy thing to take a, a take a look, and actually beyond that, healthier thing still to workshop a few options. And I, I know that's the kind of process that does go on. What might it look like if this kind of thing happened? We should, within two years, be in a completely different era of prototype racing. That we're not going to be in quite as much of uh, a situation where we have to give blunt instrument type adjustments to some of the cars out there, but rather more fine-tuned, uh, one would hope, in the era of LMDH, although quite how that is going to tie in with the Le Mans hypercars is, a, is a, another tale entirely. Um, I think the situation we've got to now, where they've got this graduated points tariff, if you like, for the longer races, is better. Um, I was never a fan of the just being a blunt double points for Le Mans. Uh, it was a make or break part of the season when we had uh, it based on the calendar year. Um, and in particular, when you didn't have any other way of making up some of the, the gap, but now with the eight hour races and with Sebring uh, pulling in uh, proportionately more points in the six hour race, it's less of an issue. I think it's a better system than we had before you've sort of got to suck it and see, haven't you? You've sort of got to wait and see how that pans out as whatever you're going to get for the entry emerges. The more cars in the entry um, has also got an effect on your ability to gain or lose ground. Uh, in other words, you have a bad day and you're in a field of six, you're going to finish sixth if you finish at all. If you have a bad day and you've got a field of 10 or 12, it's a substantially worse day. So I think that kind of decision almost needs to be taken once they've got a better hold on the kind of grid they're going to get into next season and the season beyond that. And here's the reality. Literally nobody knows at the moment. Nobody knows. Hmm. I'm thinking of a Queens of a Stone Age song right now that uses that refrain quite beautifully. Uh, where else are we going to go? You know, we're going to stay with Daniel. Why? He's a, he's a man that helps power the WEC category each week. Says, I've enjoyed looking at some 2003 LMES photos on Daily mm. Sports Car. Says there was a lot more variety in the styling and shapes of cars back then. Uh, while now, all cars, especially LMP1 and LMP2, look the same. 
Mm-hmm. Curious if he thinks when we get to maybe the LMDH side of things. I know that's IMSA, but uh, we know hypercars should look a wee bit different. Curious yep. if we have any LMDHs that might get used in the WEC. Uh, if we think there might be some styling cueage differences uh, that harken back to this era he loves. Well, thanks for that, Daniel. So, Daniel saw obviously seeing Dave Lord's gallery from the freezing cold Le Mans thousand kilometers the precursor to what became the Le Mans series and from there on in the LMS and for that matter, the WEC. That was a sort of time when the prototype regulations were in a bit of flux, moving between P675, moving towards LMP2, um, moving you know from the old SR1, SR2 into the LMP kind of uh, categories. Um, do I think we're going to see a, uh, some, some differences? Yes, I do. Uh, we've already seen the ideas that Glickenhaus and Toyota have got for their cars. They're very different looking hypercars. I've seen some uh, ideas from a couple of parties as to what an LMDH might look like. That, of course, has got to wait for the ultimate uh, regulations. But certainly the idea that the philosophy behind this is that they should be immediately more visibly styled with a more than a nod towards the brand that they are representing. And to my mind, that's essential right now. If you're going to go down the road of the performance levels we're talking about for LMDH for budgetary reasons, the reality is you want those things to be less vanilla than perhaps some of the offerings we've got out there at the moment. So, yes, I think the opportunity will be there for the manufacturers and for the teams to make these things visibly more like the mainstream brand or, for that matter, boutique brand um, that they are representing. And I hope that's the case. There are risks that the the kind of general shape, you know, will be the defining factor. But I think with what we've seen from the DPIs we've seen so far, MP, much as I have to say, I think they look great. But in truth, beyond the... um, the master, I think there was a little bit of a cop out for the rest of the manufacturers there. I think that was very much more done on the race car side than the Starling side. I think the master looks palpably different to anything else out there. And I'd like to see more effort going into the opportunity to make those cars look like the road cars, you know, which, you know, the road, road car brand, which they're supposed to represent. And I believe that's very much the road we are going to take. The proof of the pudding will indeed be in the styling. Let's take one more here from Weckasm Elms Aco. And as usual, if we didn't get to your question, please send it in next week and tell us, hey, idiots, answer my question this time. Going to go to our pal Ryan Terpstra. He says, it looks like IMSA poo-pooed the Dinner with Racers guys in their Thursday night blunder iRacing series. <laughs> um, says, Graham, any word on the WEC? Are they planning Ooh. anything, uh, particularly for Le Mans? And he spelled it right uh, this time, by the way. But I will admit on the official esports sim racing side i'm struggling to recall anything of anything serious out of WEC or the aco there there is a le mans esports series um and that has been a fairly long-lived thing i can recall at silverstone last year um the winners of that series from the year before being celebrated 
Um, slight problem is that that is a series that is partnered with uh, a very large motorsport media network. And Russian two backed, I believe. That. Yeah, yeah. The uh, and therefore, obviously, trying to skew the results. Um, the uh, two things to say about that is, unfortunately, that means that is distinctly unlikely that anybody else is going to promote that for them. Uh, so they're left to their own devices. And equally, unfortunately, they're terrible at doing that as well, which is why, Ryan, you've not heard about it. And I'll be blunt, you won't be hearing about it from Daily Sports Car either, um, because, to be blunt, it's a bit of a closed shop. And uh, there's not a lot of incentive for anybody that's not directly involved in that motorsports organisation, um, the motorsport media organisation, uh, to in any way support their efforts in doing so. Sorry about that. I wish it was. I felt different about it, but I don't. I was being a bit cheeky. Yes, uh, the very same conversation of, hey, uh, so there is this Le Mans-based esports thing. Should we promote it? No. Uh, they have chosen to get in bed with an outlet that uh, not besmirching the people who produce the content, the writers and, and other folks, not by any means, but the business practices and just overall uh, meritorious saucity of the folks who own it. Um, yeah, that's something that will lead just about everyone else to say, Sorry, uh, we're not helping you in any way, shape, or form to try and promote that thing because all you do is try and destroy the rest of us. Uh, so that's just a little bit uh, of uh, worse, worse than that. Worse than that, MP, not just the rest of us, but their own titles. You know, it's completely ridiculous. But, you know, I'm not going to get into it because it's a story that's been told time and time again. And I, like you, absolutely nothing to do with the vast majority of people that work within the doors of that organization. But when it gets to the stage where you're putting in a strategy to take down, um, you know, uh, very long-standing titles just to try to prove that your business model was correct when it patently wasn't, I'm afraid at that point uh, any modicum of respect that I've actually got for the business, I'm afraid it's gone out the window. So I'm not even going to mention the name. I agree. Let's go, Graham, to another category. What are you going to select for us? Let's go for a, a few of Hegel. And what are we going to get to here? It's Alex Eichmiller, another of our regulars. Hey, Alex. Um, he asks, Do the ex does the extended layoff from racing cause any extra work for teams whenever we get back to racing? We always hear road cars don't like to sit. How about race cars? Any extra maintenance or rebuilding that might be required due to the downtime? Would not reckon? say anything in particular, Alex. The question that will need to be answered by teams in whatever series will be what state were the cars left in when everyone had to go home and stop yep. putting hands on those cars. So for, I think in most instances that come to mind, uh, frankly, on an international basis, I think in most instances, teams should have been able to have their cars up on the stands, uh, whether it's you know taken apart or put back together, motors out if they needed to come out, uh, whatever it is. Uh, I think there was enough time for just about everybody to do what they needed to do to have their cars either disassembled and parts sent off 
waiting to return when they can be returned. Or in some instances, if we talk about, say, IndyCar, those cars were fully assembled at the race, had gone through technical inspection, were truly ready to hit the track when things were called off. So barring some very light work to uh, whether it's pulling the motors or uh, preparing the motors, doing something called pickling, oddly enough, um, to make sure the motors uh, do not seize or anything like that while sitting, um, there really should not be a, a very long turnaround uh, for most racing series that come to mind. So I think in this instance, it should not be an exceptionally long need for teams to say, oh, okay, uh, we're going racing on date X. We're going to need a month to get ready for that. I think I many think a, could have yeah. cars in transporters and moving within one to two days. I agree. I think uh, the, the, there is a plus here in terms of the timing, or rather there's not a minus in terms of the timing on two fronts. One is uh, in Europe, the major kind of preseason testing programs were just about getting underway. The uh, GT World Challenge Europe had their major test uh, just before the shutters came down. But in particular for the WEC and for the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, the teams had prepared their cars for the most punishing race of the season. We're just about to hit the ground, of course, at Sebring. So those cars were as ready as they were going to be at that point. Would they need to effectively do a little bit of work to put them into a little bit of stasis, a bit of cold storage, if you like? Yes, but you're absolutely right, MP. That is probably no different from the kind of work you would do anyway to containerize your car. Uh, so there will be all sorts of, you know, bits and pieces that you prepare to make sure that damage is not done in transit. Uh, but beyond that, I absolutely don't see any reason at all why there should be any delay once we've got to go, uh, once the green light actually is given uh, to get in those cars, either uh, in or out of those containers, on or off the trucks and onto track. Where are we going next, my friend? Let's have a look. One here from Ian Keyworth directed to me. What's happening to the British GT Championship in light of calendar changes all seems very quiet. Uh, I think all things are under control as best they can be. It all obviously depends on when we can get back and racing. Key in the UK, of course, is that Motorsport UK, our governing body, um, has determined there will be no licenses to race um, for some considerable time yet. The other thing to remember about British GT, it's an SRO-run series. SRO will be looking to get their GT World Challenge races um, out of the blocks as quickly as they can. I should say, I think SRO in Europe at the very least have been extremely good so far in their contingency planning. Plan A, Plan B, Plan C, etc., etc. So they've got this kind of tumbling dominoes uh, plan that if that goes or we start to get to the point where this line in the sand is is having to be crossed to get to the point where we can start racing there, then we need to think about that. I think there's a lot of realism going on at the moment. The reality for the British GT Championship, two audiences here, you, me, and everybody else that loves to go and watch it, and all those people that want to go and race in it. Um, At the moment, they're getting it right. What they're looking after are their key stakeholders, the people who are going to be spending the big money to go they are aware, as aware as anybody can be, of what the choices might be should the dates that are currently slated start to fall. But uh, I'll start worrying about that maybe in another month. Let's see. Where else shall we wander in Hagen? Here's a good one. 
our, our mate SRA Smoking Puff P841, Ewan, hello Ewan, is there some transaction involved naming an Orica 07, an Alpine, or an Auris? Those are a rehomologation fee, but nothing else. Surely if it was free, we'd see more cars rebranded to increase the brand's chance of success and better marketability for the teams. I think that was a gr- – it's a great question, by the way. It would have been an even better question a year ago because now I think the game has totally changed. Now anybody knocking on the door and saying, I, I'm representing brand B um, – could I possibly uh, call this Orica 07 or this Ligier JS P217? I was being a little more adventurous. Could I call that a, um, I don't know, a Pruitt? Uh, and, do no, no, <laughs> and here's the fee. Now, I think the game has changed. Now, I think they've been presented with, here's a draft set of regulations for LMDH. We'll talk to you in a month. That's what I think will happen now. I don't see the immediate prospect for much, if any more, of that going on with LMP2 from this point forward. Um, if you've taken the, the, the view, and they have, to go down the road of uh, nailing down cost cap formulae at the top of the shop, if you are an automotive brand, they're going to expect you to comply with the rule set that has been put into place for exactly that. Or frankly, one of two rule sets, hypercar or LMDH. Mm. Take one here from Doogie Davies. Marshall had been watching a lot of the old ALMS races. They had something called the Michelin Green X Challenge that rewarded teams for being environmentally friendly. Seemed to be very popular amongst teams and manufacturers, and the push for lower emissions was not nearly as strong back then as it is now. With more manufacturers being concerned with the environment, do you think reintroducing something similar would increase not only involvement for manufacturers, but bring in more youthful audience whose focus is more on the environment now more than ever. Also said, thanks to the two of you for all you've done to help occupy us and keep us looking forward to the future. Nothing is more enjoyable than sitting down in my racing sim, firing up Project Cars 2, and listening to all your podcasts. Well, that's incredibly sweet. That makes one of us. I can't stand this thing. (laughs) Um, Well, so here's a little bit of fun. So there might still be something like this. I honestly have forgotten. It might've gone away. Maybe it's come back, but the most recent iteration, I recall it was referred to as the Decra green challenge or something like that sponsored by Decra. Uh, and I think there might be a new one this year. I don't know. I stopped paying attention to it. So I, in my very first Official duty, Graham, as mm. a full-time American Le Mans series beat reporter in mm. January of 2008. First assignment in this new relationship forged between the ALMS and Speed Channel, Speed.com, where I worked, where I was assigned. They paid, ra- they paid racer. They paid Speed.com $50,000 for the year, uh, of which that... I, I think hopefully I got a little bit of that. Uh, but anyways, ALMS paid. You got the dollar part of that. Yes. You got the dollar part of that? Yeah. Uh, the <laughs> ALMS paid Speed $50,000 to have us cover their series every round. So that covered my travel and a variety of other things. So it was good. It was actually one of the first actual real money deals uh, the site had had, apparently. And so my first duty was to go to Detroit, a very snowy Detroit, in mid-January, 
for the North American International Auto Show, where the Michelin Green X Challenge. Uh, I don't. I think it might have just been the Green Challenge, then. I don't know if the X was thrown in yet, but uh, the announcement of the Michelin Green Challenge, and this is a very vivid memory. Because having just found some old hard drives and found some old content that I'd totally forgotten about, one of them that I saw just a few days ago was a 14-minute-long edit of the press conference with Scott wow. Atherton and Marg, Margot T. Ogay, the head of U.S. Department of Transportation, and this person and that person, and being there to film it being there to do interviews and write stories and take photos and file all this crap to speed.com. And I loved the idea behind this. I really did. I only recall one or two, maybe three teams though, that embraced this. So the Corvette racing team, they had moved to what we called cellulosic E85 and they actually made it themselves. The very first batches they genuinely brewed behind the Pratt Miller shop in a 55-gallon drum um, and started using that. And we had Audi at the time, obviously, on their diesel. I don't know if I would call that low emissions, but regardless, uh, we had one or two other teams flirting with uh, more friendly fuels to consume. But none of those things that I know of uh, really for the vast majority of the other teams, meaning the 95% of the rest of the series, none of them that I know of really did anything to comply or play with this. Um, so what we ended up having was, hey, Michelin Green Challenge is great. We're going to come up with a formula. We are going to insert sensors into the refueling rigs also marry that with the information we're getting across telemetry of the fuel being burned in the cars and we're going to come up with this number and i believe what was i think it might have been the lowest number was the thing you were looking for and the entry that travels the most miles with the least amount of fuel consumed wins the green challenge for that event so it was very often won by Audis and Corvettes in their respective classes. Pretty much the rest of everyone else didn't give a fart, didn't do a thing, had no interest in any of it. And so what was interesting and maybe debunked the value of this a bit, unfortunately, is Team So-and-So won Green X Challenge in their class. Yay! What did they do to win? Uh, they were just a little more fuel efficient with their right foot. Oh, well, did they use some sort of special fuel that's more nice to the environment? No, <laughs> not at all. So it was just interesting seeing a variety of teams, air quote, win this. And they did actually get trophies for winning oh, the Green Challenge, having done nothing to try and help the environment. Uh, so I, 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 yeah. I, can recall, I can recall at least one in our world, household name, um, being handed the cap, because there was a green cap as well, uh, in the hat dance that goes on on the podiums, and giving, I can only describe as one of those looks, um, and this was a very well-known driver indeed, 
still is a very well-known personality in motorsports. Um, and it was pretty clear at that stage that uh, this was not a part of the proceedings that they particularly valued professionally. Can we put it that way? Um, I think the other thing to say about the Green X Challenge, and it's, it's something that motorsport falls into when it looks at this kind of relevance is, when you've got a system of winning or losing anything that depends on a complicated algorithm, which this did, the reality is it's impossible to follow until after the flag, which means quite difficult to analyse. Um, and frankly, I don't know anybody that really took the trouble to do so. If, if, uh, if you are that person, uh, write to me on a postcard in here at uh, Graham Goodwin. Don't give a crap about it either. Uh, Epsom, sorry, the UK. But um, it, it certainly, it's a worthy thing to do. It was just pretty impenetrable. I think is what it came to, came across to me, MP. I don't know about you. Yeah, and the just the main takeaway here, uh, I love the idea behind it, right? Hey, let's be more responsible. Let's incentivize yeah. this, right? If you really try and help the world, and we'll give you something, you'll be recognized for it. You can promote it. As, uh, as was noted here in the question from uh, good old Doogie Davies, it's a little bit early on the arc of caring about such things so you really didn't get many if any manufacturers jumping in going aha this is our mission in life now so it was a valuable differentiator for the series first and foremost that's uh, about where it stopped so the series was able to say hey those grand am apes they're doing nothing they hate the environment they want to kill it us we're just tree-hugging environment lovers over here. And so, you know, did it enrich the series? Did it get a lot of extra sponsors wanting to jump in on this green wave? No. Uh, did any kind of EV, you know, hybridization stuff take off? No. There were, again, little smatterings, but this was a promotional item first and foremost. And I don't know if it did them any good, but they did get some money from Michelin. They did get some money from Decra and... You know, maybe that was a positive. But the, the main point that Graham raised was what made this such a flop. If you don't really know how to gauge the performance among teams in this Green X Challenge as it's happening, how do you care, right? And so pick the sport that you love. If it's football slash soccer, you're able to say the goalie defended X amount yep. of, you know, there's a ratio, there's something to track where you can go, ooh, that player's having an amazing game. That person's hit the ball, bounced it, kicked it, whatever. There's visible metrics you can follow. In racing, what do we have? Passes. We have lap times, right? I mean, there's some pretty basic things that we look to to go, ooh, they're flying. We can see they started 10th, they're now 3rd, wow tune in see what they're doing live and cherish that or celebrate it or new lap record or blah 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 what do you do here uh oh uh the porsche whatever the flying lizard 44 porsche has a 31.2 in the green challenge oh and the other one has a 33.4 okay 
what the hell's a 31.2? And uh, it's about the low number is good, but it, had, it, it was just impossible. So really what this turned out to be was the handing out of hardware after the race with people going, oh, we did? Oh, cool. Thanks. Oh, cool. Um, nice. Fantastic. You know that door that keeps blowing closed because of the breeze in the house? Hey, I got something that's going to prop it open. Um <laughs> That was about all we had. Graham, we're done with Hegeneral, and it's time to move to whatever category you decide. Tell us, dear selector. I reckon... Let's go fun. Yes! Let's do that. Well, do you want me to read the first fun to you? You want to read it, or you want... Uh, I've got a couple of, couple here. One from Josh Rich and one from Jamie Bender. And uh, they basically come from this uh, come to this kind of lockdown world from the similar kind of um, direction. Uh, Josh asks, "Are there any sports car races from any era you'd recommend to watch during the lockdown?" And Jamie says, "I uh, see where other spick, stick and ball sports are replaying great games of the past. What are your top three sports car races in history? Wow, to go back and rewatch." He's only been watching sports car racing for a few years. Please enlighten him uh, in his downtime of the kind of things you should be looking at. What do you recommend, MP? Well, I'd say regional attractions might be a place to start. So depending on where you happen to live, dear listener, and what form of sports car racing you might be a fan of could be something that is domestic for you. My suggestion would be to cross borders and go somewhere else. You can find a lot of amazing Trans Am races here from the 1980s in particular, 80s and 90s Trans Am. Oh, the 94 season in Trans Am is one that jumps out, but the whole 85, 6, 7 seasons were amazing. Would try those for sure. Uh, boy, what else would I suggest? Uh, the World Sports Prototype Championship, Sports Car Prototype Championship, WSPC that ran through about 1992-1993. Boy, that's one that I would certainly be looking up on the good old YouTubes. I'd throw those two in as just good places to start. We can do more of these each week if you want, throw in more questions about what and where, but I would say that if you are an American, I would definitely suggest WSPC as your thing to go look for. And if you are outside the good old borders here, Give Trans Am from about 84, 85 through about 94, 95 a look. I don't think you're going to be disappointed. Let's see. Where should we go next? Uh, Graham from Peter Stolly. What's your go-to music to listen to when you're traveling to and from races? Oh, that's a good one. Um, well, we, we have on occasion in the DSC fun bus uh, done a kind of playlist where everybody brings four or five tunes and we pop them on a uh, mp3 player and away we go uh, a vast vast um variety uh we've got uh, peter pedro may's music which is the kind of music that does make you want to stop the car and throw yourself off a bridge um so not my favorites uh we've got uh david doris downs uh, very much likes his jazz a um, little bit of you know almost slightly almost country uh with him for me quite a i've got quite a kind of uh, a very taste everything kind of 1970s punk through to soul got into soul rather remarkably through the kind of revisits of uh 
uh, of Soul through uh, the commitments and uh, then started to go back through back catalogue. So a vast majority, a vast kind of uh, array of stuff um, tends to kind of fit the mood, you know, on the way there, maybe a bit more upbeat on the way back, maybe a little bit more downbeat, uh, but try to keep it uh, pretty varied. What about you on the road, MP? I actually have a couple of traditions in terms of Ooh. events and music. And I don't know if there was any reason for these things developing, but I did get into a groove the last couple of years of covering the 24 hours of Le Mans, which I did for 10 straight. Fortunately, the last couple of years, it was just automatic Queens of the stone age period. So get in whatever, uh, higher car that I would have and whatever the drive is to two and a half hours from uh, Charles de Gaulle to uh, Le Mans, it would just be Queens of the Stone Age cranked up to 11. My first year covering Le Mans in 2007, listened to an American band by the name of The Shins, and they had a newish album out. And I'll tell you, whenever I listen to The Shins, that is exactly what I'm transported back to. Le Mans 2007, my wife and I were super broke at the time, she wasn't working. I was a brand new uh, reporter for speed.com making almost no money whatsoever. And so thankfully to Corvette Racing, which said, hey, you're a quasi-fake journalist. Uh, we'll include you in the group that we send over here from America uh, on our media tour to Le Mans. It's great, amazing, got some little Chevy something. Uh, if it had one cylinder, I'd be surprised. It was so small. I could barely fit in it, especially all my gear. And since we were so broke and in this kind of pre smartphone, iPhone era, could not afford a GPS, uh, a Tom, Tom or a whatever, a Garmin or whatever would have been very helpful. And so I, with no money, with no GPS, with, no money to either buy or rent a mobile phone in France, much less pay for international usage, whatever, with my own phone. Uh, I just remember listening to the shins for about five to six hours, I think, is what it took me to get to Le Mans from Charles de Gaulle because I had no idea how to get there, and I had nothing, Graham. <laughs> Again, I had no technology to help get me there. I had looked it up, and I think maybe printed out some directions online, but this was all, I believe, leaving Charles de Gaulle. Well, what happened was, no, instead of picking up a car there, um, I was told to take a taxi to someone's uh, a rep, from the Chevy dealer had brought the car home and put it in their little uh, front wherever. And all of a sudden, at the very last minute, all my plans were changed. And so he more or less spoke three words of English. That wasn't quite as impressive as my four words of French. And we tried to communicate so I could ask, how do I leave the center of Paris <laughs> now to get to Le Mans? And um, I can tell you this, my friend, I've listened to the shins a whole bunch on that drive because 
it was just the only thing that kind of kept me calm and happy. While truly, I think I started off going north out of Paris. That was wrong. Um, I then went west, which was right, but I think I went southwest. I mean, I just, I went all over. Uh, Eventually, through figuring out street signs, this was at night, of course, so there's, I think it was on a, whatever time it was, Graham, nobody was up. There were no shops to go into. There's no one to really speak to. And so I just literally fumbled around France for four or five, maybe six hours, and eventually found my hotel. And uh, during that little mildly traumatic thing, I listened to the shins. So that was great. Uh, Then the other one is whenever I go to Road America, don't exactly know why, but uh, one of my favorite bands uh, is absolutely excuse me uh that's another event where it is just all about listening to a favorite band and if i could remember their name it would be even better i love them so much that it's you know just impossible to not remember them while i'm not remembering them i'll go ahead and throw out the name mastodon which is the band i love but i had to just look it up in itunes because they completely fell out of my brain so that's another one very different type of music but yeah so between the shins uh queens of the stone age and mastodon those are kind of sort of three that come to mind here all good stuff so then couple of questions about uh your favorite subject at the moment mp online racing um because i know you're enjoying that i know andrew Backer has a good one here too uh does he really right so dustin marlowe saying uh we've heard about mp looking into iRacing. The question is now when will we see graham on iRacing as well you will never see me on iRacing. uh could we get a twist iRacing battle between the two of you no um i'm not really an online racer that's uh that's uh, it will, would be within 15 minutes at the initially the request and then the insistence of everybody else um my racing style is how can we put this not subtle um now he is an excellent online racist just not an online racer yeah mainly about people from the lower part of my street here that's not racism it's just social but what's some kind of social racism don't like people from there is that socialism No, 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 that's different. Is that different? That's different. Oh, okay. Capitalism? Uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, I forget. He's a capital so, racist, uh, something absolutely. like that. Andrew Backer says, since you're going to give iRacing a go, no, I'm not, and since it has He's the He's talking about me uh, here, I think. Absolutely. All right, Audi 90 GTO, which you said recently you did indeed, the car you most want to give a go, and since you have a particularly unique aesthetic to me, I'm not quite sure which way you should take that. Uh, <laughs> What your thoughts on anachronistic liveries, whether or not an out-of-place manufacturer era on both real and virtual race cars. Two, if you could pick an anachronistic livery for your iRacing or Audi GTO debut, what would it be? Uh, hashtag me personally, I've been racing the Audi RS3 TCR with 2012 WTCC RML Chevy Cruze livery because the Chevy, uh, Chevy C8R livery I created was a just a bit too much even for me. Can I just say, congratulations, Andrew Backer. That is the most stream of consciousness uh, question <laughs> we've had this year. Over to you, MP. Uh, it's almost <laughs> like he uses a, that consciousness to create brilliant brain dump. Uh, <laughs> little fake sponsor jingles for us too uh i i would say andrew what comes to mind and yes i'm with you i love the polluting the waters by breaking manufacture uh alliances with 
their respective branding and whatnot. The one that came to mind for the Audi GTO, and it's just because the colors, I think, are in the kind of similar hemisphere, uh, but unrelated, would be the old March Porsche, the Al Holbert, um, actually, I'm not sure, the uh, Red Roof Inn slash um, Red Lobster. Well, I don't know why I said Red Roof Inn. Maybe that was it. Uh, I'm seriously having some brain farting here. But the old uh, Lobster Claw uh, livery on that Audi, I think, would be rather amazing. So that one jumps out to me for sure. Then we could just go for some really crazy random stuff like the somewhat iconic Target IndyCar livery applied to the Audi GTO. I think that would be pretty good. Uh, the one that I might like most of all would be a mid to early 80s Dale Earnhardt Sr. Wrangler jeans, uh, blue and yellow um, livery applied to that Audi. I think that would just be gorgeous upon gorgeous. So, yeah, that's uh, that's going to be my call for sure. I, I'd go with the Peugeot livery on it just because it's, it is anachronistic. Um, and uh, those colors pretty well known pretty easy to actually spot out what you're trying to do but as an anachronism as an old live rivalry for the uh, the audis i'd like to see the the audi in peugeot colors uh, not least because actually they were pretty nice colors uh the, the particularly the the, uh, the chromed blue and black uh colors on those cars i think that might look quite good on the big old buff that is the audi gto um one here from jeremy charette what's your favorite sports car that wasn't built for a race series. Hashtag me personally. It's got to be the Oldsmobile Aerotech. Marshall, love to hear the inside story from those that built it, the mad Texan that drove it to almost 300 miles an hour. Now, I think what Jeremy's asking here is for a car that was not designed to be raced, as opposed to the conversation that you and I have just been having before we recorded this, MP, about continuing the series that we're running on DSC about sports cars that were designed to race but didn't. And we've got some corkers coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, the Oldsmobile Aerotech, I, I remember, as being a pretty cool matchbox toy. Yeah, uh, it's a great idea. I should reach out to AJ Foyt and get some further information on that. So okay. that's a, uh, that's a good call. Uh, if you, that's a, it's a very good call. Let's I'll see. You're going to hear the sound of typing, uh, in the background. While <laughs> Is Graham that speak. you writing to I'm, AJ Foyt? No, I'm adding that to my podcasts to do ah. list. Um, right. well, while you're doing that, I'll add mine, which is a car that I saw for the first time decades after it, um, it actually appeared on the, uh, the auto show circuit, and that's the Audi Avus. Um, I thought that was a stunning piece of kit. Have a look at look at that uh, that one online if you're not sure what that one is. Uh, but the Audi Avus, A V U S, named of course after the uh, famous Berlin bonkers racetrack. Um, and actually, I saw that car in the Audi Museum um, relatively recently, and it is just as stunning in the metal as it looked on the pictures and uh yeah that would have been a great car to have seen actually on the road uh, i mean as visually shocking in a good way as the jaguar xj220 is every time you see one rolling down the road and i've only ever seen that happen um out there in the big wide world once and rather remarkably um 
the only time I've ever seen a Jaguar X2, XJ220 on the road, it was pulling out of my street here about 10 years before I lived here. Wow. Um, so it was, pull, it was pulling out of the end Is of the Is that why you, you bought the place? You're no, like, well, this no, must no, be magical. Not, but uh, but um, there's, uh, I know exactly where the car was at that stage. It was a, a friend of a family of a neighbor. But uh, the, it, it, that was such a remarkable piece of kit um, that you, you just wanted to stop and stare at it. Uh, so it's that. It's the visual thing. But beyond that, as we've said before, sports cars are never raced, whether it's GT cars or prototypes, are legion. There are lots of them. Uh, my list, I think I relayed last week, uh, was over 100. We're about 110 now. Uh, I'm at the moment working number four in the series and number five and number six and number seven of that list. Hopefully all of those will be done within the week uh, as part of our kind of lockdown feature coverage. But uh, I think that's a cracking um, idea. And certainly I'd love to hear more about the Oldsmobile Aerotech. Yeah, well, I've got that added to the list. Before that, I have uh, Townsend Bell to tell me in podcast form. I've re- actually did an article for it in Road and Track about uh, Robbie Gord- borrowing Robbie Gordon's prototype um, stadium super truck and it catching on fire. Um, let's see. Uh, Reeves Calloway, uh, the connection you've helped make to talk about an IndyCar engine he tried to build. Uh, I've got another one on when Apple sponsored race cars I want to chase down. Uh, old IMSA official Marty Kaufman, who's a friend, want to reach out to him and uh, just spin some yarns about uh, old IMSA and ALMS as well. And then maybe another one to uh, to chase down would be Engineering Tales of the Cadillac CTSVR, the uh, original World Challenge GT machine. That was one of the greatest engineering efforts ever, taking a car that it, looking at in street form in 2004. Wow. Would have I've never heard. been confused for a vehicle that should <laughs> do more than, be, than pace a field of race cars. Uh, things like disconnecting uh, the floor from the shell taking four inches off of the bottom of the shell and reattaching the floor. <laughs> wow. Not, not the old chopping and channeling where you take four inches off the top. They actually just whacked a uh, hundred millimeters off the bottom of the car and then reattached it to the floor. I mean, just the things <laughs> done to make this vehicle just destroy everything. Uh, it was one of the greatest examples of outrage and uproar from within a series of any kind that I can remember uh, this millennium. Uh, the That is not in the spirits of the rule. That is so far beyond what should be allowed. These are production-based, we'll call them precursor or close to GT3 cars. Uh, this is not. <laughs> this is not just <laughs> making some modifications to run wider wheels and tires so you're kind of doing some bigger wheel arches and such. And here's a couple of, you know, mild aesthetic changes you can make to fit this. This was wholesale re-engineering of a production car to go racing. And it was glorious and I don't care. And it was amazing. So anyways, hoping to Um, uh, get into that on podcast form as well. um, Right. Uh, Departing from fun and heading 
down the boulevard towards him, sir. What? I'm going to pick up one from General, oh, here, General, that we omitted, but uh, I'd just like to answer it. it. comes from Scott Christie. says, hi, guys. Who's likely to get to the Triple Crown first, Alonso or Montoya? Can I answer that one first? Please. Neither. Really? I just have an inkling. I just have an inkling. Of the two, of the two, you have to say that in the current climate, um, probably Montoya, if LMDH gets going, he's going to be in, if he c- uh, carries on with his career, no sign of that stopping anytime immediately soon, uh, he should have a winning opportunity in the one that he needs to win, which is Le Mans, by 2022, correct? Yeah. Um, you have to say, the gap and the odds for for uh, Alonso to do it, it strikes me as being a steeper mountain to climb for Fernando Alonso than it is at the moment for Montoya. But what I'm going to say on balance, and I'm not doing it just to be controversial, neither. I can see that being the story strand of neither of them actually getting there. Um, because at the end of the day, both of these gentlemen, and I have huge respect for the talents of both these guys, are far closer to the end of their careers than the beginning. And I do wonder how many more opportunities they're going to get. Well... Thanks for the sobering answer there, Goodwin. <laughs> Whatever, you, you horrible person. Uh, all right, so you said IMSA. I guess let's uh, let's close the show in IMSA, and I'll just repeat again. If we didn't get to your questions or wherever else, send them back in. We'll, uh, we'll do our best next time. Right, well, I'm going to serve these up, up to you, my friend. The first one comes from Kevin Payne. Kev uh, actually says for both of us, with LMDH introduction being pushed back, uh, which thankfully says has given more time for the WC and IMSA to agree the regulations. Do you have any updates on what the timeline for publication now looks like? I don't, but I will. Uh, I am meant to get an update here very, very shortly, and so I hope to be writing about that at some point next week. Um, I th- think, Kev, the answer is going to be the regulations are done when are they going to be announced i think that's going to end up being the bigger question normally when such things get completed there's almost no lag time uh for that information being shared with the world not necessarily well again it could be that and here are the rules they're now formally distributed or it could just be a news hey they're done they've been sent to all uh respective parties i think now with our coronavirus world could just be more a case of where should we make this information uh, known publicly just on a timeline of what's happening on Earth. So I think the other, yeah, I think the other thing to say here as well, as we said a little bit towards this earlier in the show, is don't confuse the fact that you don't know, we don't know exactly what they say, with the people working on programs not knowing, because they almost certainly do have the information they need to progress it it neatly fits in with um the conversation we were having earlier in the show about porsche there's no doubt in my mind nobody's going to leave porsche without the tools at their disposal to decide whether or not they're going to do it so the reality is whatever form those regulations are in i've no doubt that pascal zalinden from porsche motorsport and all of his senior management team have got exactly what they need to make a decision on which go what goes forward Okay, next one up goes to George Allegretto. George, one of our regular questioners. Uh, don't mean it doesn't mean to be Mr. D Downer, but uh, what's the economic impact to him and the teams if there's no racing until 20, 
2021. Uh, hope it doesn't come to pass, but it's very possible due to the social political pressures. If the NFL doesn't start in September, you can't imagine any other US sports doing so. What do you reckon at the moment? What's your taste on the uh, the current situation um, across the water from me, MP? It would be calamitous, George. This is something where we're already concerned. Speaking strictly on the American front, wrote a week or two ago about the Triple P program uh, as a part of the $2 trillion uh, stimulus package, this being the Paycheck Protection Program, a system meant to provide loans which could be forgiven, essentially money given away if you meet the requirements during that loan period, to give small businesses the ability to cover their employees' paychecks. And we've just seen we've had, I think, 6.6 million people apply for unemployment benefits, which is you know yeah. an all-time record. So this Triple P program is meant to stave that off. We've read that this program has not necessarily gone as smoothly as one would hope. Uh, in some cases, it could be governmental shortcomings or flaws. In many others that I've read, it is on the point of contact level with American yep. banks. And whether it's a Wells Fargo, Bank of America, etc., just being a-holes and or creating really big problems to make uh, these applications get processed, get seen, get reviewed. So there is certainly worries right now george forget later in the year forget uh the if we have to cancel the season altogether just getting through the next two months with income for those employees through the triple pre triple p program it's an issue right now and so with our sport in imsa being so heavily small team privately owned team based uh, this is a serious issue of will they survive? There's no income coming in. I mean, there's nothing. And there's no creative ways to generate that income, real income. Of course, people can buy T-shirts and mugs and stickers to support your favorite team. Please do it if you can. But that's not going to keep the team afloat. Can't go testing. Can't do anything and the longer this goes on the more jeopardy the teams we love along with the local businesses we love uh of we stand for those things to go away so that's just an immediate concern we look a couple months down the road if we are talking august september before we might go back to racing if that is something that we can do i think there's going to be significant casualties for sure. Uh, if we're talking having to cancel a season altogether, like we just saw yesterday with the reformed XFL, uh, you know, the off-brand football rival to the NFL here. Uh, yeah. If that happens for any major racing series in the U.S., I would say that there will be vast concerns about whether that series will return at all. I know that on the IndyCar and IMSA and NASCAR and Formula One front, 
And as we read every day, Graham, you know, just read this morning that the Haas Formula One team has furloughed almost everybody. Furloughed means you aren't getting paid. You still have a job, but you are not getting paid. I don't know what the UK unemployment rules are, at least here, if you are furloughed. That means that you can um, uh, apply for unemployment benefits. No guarantee get them, uh, but you can at least apply for unemployment to get paid to receive weekly income from the government uh, while also maintaining health care benefits. But I just I think that's going to end up being the norm here uh, rapidly. By the end of April, I would say, George, every IMSA team and name all the other series that you might enjoy. I think this story is going to be universal. Uh, there are going to be mass furloughs uh, and in some cases layoffs slash firings because the ability for those companies to stay afloat it will be dependent upon shedding salaries. I think it's the same everywhere, isn't it? Um, I think the answer, by the way, on furloughing in UK is... Slightly different. There are different uh, schemes in place, but broadly the idea is the same, is that uh, if you're furloughed, you can then be rolled into this, uh, not triple P uh, scheme, but something remarkably similar in the UK with a guaranteed level of basic income tied into what you were previously earning, something like 80% of your previous income. Um, But it's a very worrying time for everybody. The one thing I would say here um, is... I think what we're seeing is a lot of spirit uh, across the business world, across the, the world where we, the employed, if you like, uh, occupy as well. Uh, everybody recognizing the reality of what we're facing here um, and trying our best to, I think, pe- keep people on the straight and narrow. What you don't want is a cataclysmic um not just economic uh, impact, but also impact. Obviously, what we're trying to affect is uh, an impact on physical health, but a cataclysmic impact on mental health uh, to come here. And I'd say one word, and it's not a very fashionable thing here to say, but I do feel, no matter how well they are seen to be dealing with these things, for the politicians and their officials that are having to make these decisions, um, this is where you find out where the true leaders are going to be uh, for the future. Watch now across the world who's doing a good and a bad job here, who's with the programme, who's not with the programme. And I say this without pointing the finger at any individual. Right now what you need are people that lead. Right now what you need are people that can engender both respect and um, a, a, a collective positive response to a really, truly desperate situation and remember they uniquely are in a position where they have to make a decision and that decision right now for very many people is between economic survival and putting that ahead at some point of the likelihood that that will cost people their lives that is something that i don't know anybody that i ever work with in government or beyond sees as being a small decision so for a moment while we're there taking the mickey as we always (laughs) would and should on social media of the one of the people perhaps doing the world's worst press conference or a not very well chosen set of words they are the decisions that these people are going to have to make right now and they are really 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 tough 
now's the time when we find out who the leaders are going to be for this planet for the next decades to come. Watch carefully. You know, I'll throw in another thing, and I <laughs> I have learned a new skill that I'm only able to employ part-time, and that Speaking? is not responding. It not oh, The pole dancing I already knew how to do. Um, <laughs> it's not responding to things on social media that I just, like, really want to just go, ah! Yep. at the person yep. so that yep. now granted yep. i'm not always perfect on that front by any means but i'm i'm getting better at just nope it often comes after typing a full response and then just deleting it and getting back to my real life um i looked at something posted by uh occasional grand am rolex gt driver back in the day todd lamb someone who's done a lot of uh global mx5 cup races and smaller touring car style races here in the u.s and and I'm not picking on Todd. I just read it and was like, dude, what are you talking about? I was saying, again, specific here to the U.S., basically, uh, what are we doing? The longer we have this lockdown and shutdown, the more we destroy people's lives. Um, we're going to be in, in ruins if we don't get back to normal life. The COVID-19 impact, you know, appears to be on the maybe slightly downhill slope or on the road to improving. So we need to do a cost-benefit, risk-reward analysis and say, if you're concerned about having the uh, having this, having the coronavirus, or you're an at-risk person for it, then you need to self-quarantine. You need to go into a leper colony or whatever. I'm paraphrasing. But basically, we need to just identify those who could be problematic, isolate them, and turn on the rest of the country so the rest of us can get back to work and you know, to avoid ruin. And he's one of millions who have expressed that sentiment. I get it. I just read that and said... Okay, racer, um, we might be defining us and the country differently because you've just positioned this as the country being based as a financial entity, yep. not a human entity. So if you think of the country as money, then yes, we should get back. We should turn everything back on because the country financially could be at risk etc etc if you have a different view and share my view that a country is comprised of people not financial institutions you might look at things somewhat differently and so the thing that i didn't reply to todd uh, and say was i would rather be broke and homeless living in my car with my wife and cats than be a widow because everyone else in the country was too worried about money that they felt that, you know, those of you who might die, well, then you all just need to kind of get together and we're going to put you in some sort of camp or who knows what. But basically in the interest of, of money and financial prosperity and wealth, um, we're just going to go ahead and play the odds here. And sorry if some people die, but... Uh, money is king and i just i found that and i'm not saying for some listening they're going absolutely totally agree todd's right and you're wrong pruitt which again it's fine i mean i don't care but 
I just I read that and thought, okay, I mean, I I want to go racing just as much as Todd. I want life to get back to normal. I want all the teams to generate income and be healthy and all the employees to be working and crews and doing all their normal. Again, I want that as much as every one. I just have maybe a different view on uh i've been broke before i've had to live in my car before uh i know i can do it again if i'm going to choose prosperity over life um that that's not a place i'm willing to venture so if my mindset is the one that prevails coming back to george's question earlier i think um if my mindset prevails it probably is going to mean that there's going to be some significant losses of business and teams. I just maybe take a, a wider earth look and say, okay, well, if you're at least alive and you have a passion and a desire to do something, the stories of the people who had everything lost it and then went and found it and got it again. I mean, that's pretty much half of everything that comes out of Hollywood. I'd say this one to finish this one because I, I I don't want to be Mr. D Downer either, but just to put it this way, one of the things I treasure, truly cherish about the motorsport community—that's not just the paddock, but it's the fan base as well—is it's an awesome thing in adversity. It's an awesome thing in adversity to feel part of that community, that family. Look at it this way: if you are somebody who doubts the the validity of the Global government actions, almost global government actions are going on like this. Imagine the numbers right now. If I'm correct about the numbers, and I believe I am, what it means is an average person about the people that you know through your life, which numbers for most people between four and 600 people you truly know through your life, you are going to lose people you know. Okay, If people don't take action, you're going to lose people you know. So imagine putting that into the context of an average motorsport paddock. We're going to lose people from that family. These are the same people that we would mourn in any other circumstances should that happen. And we won't just lose one. We'll use, lose multiple people from that environment and from every other environment uh, that we're talking about uh, across the globe, across the, the global community, your country, your town, your street. Uh, sit your ass down and watch Netflix and stop theorizing about what you're reading on social media. Let the smart guys, let the experts advise us to do the right thing here. There are people whose life's work has been to prepare for exactly this. Please listen to them. Sit your ass down, watch Netflix, read a book, listen to The Weekend Sports Cars because that's why we're here. Holy crap, I got to play the Bushu Hammer Emporium jingle because that was a mighty ah. fine rant with the use of the word ass multiple times from Graham Goodwin. Hammers for you, hammers for me, hammers for everyone. Christoph Bushu's Hammer Emporium. And we're back. All right, well, what else do we have to cover off in IMSA before we say farewell, my friend? Two more questions to go, and the first of those is going to come from Chris Ward, who talks with the IMSA Detroit DP, uh, DP. <laughs> that guy, that's rather rolling back the years, GP is cancelled, 
That race is put on the same time as a duel in Detroit, a Penske-prompted race. What are the odds of adding an IMSA round at IMS during the Harvest GP IGTC weekend? One we've not talked about, actually, on Weekend Sports Cars. And this is an interesting one, which is IndyCar and the Intercontinental GT Challenge sharing a weekend at IMS, MP. What about the potential for IMSA filling a potential gap there? Well, that was potential I, twice in the same sentence. I apologize. It, say it four times. Uh, I would say please read racer.com on a regular basis because I wrote about this, uh, I don't know, I think Monday maybe uh, before we put out the call for questions. So whatever day I wrote about it. Uh, yes, an offer has been extended to IMSA by IndyCar to play with them on the Saturday of that event. Saturday, with this revised IndyCar calendar, they have taken the Saturday on the IMS road course for the uh, roughly two-hour-long IndyCar race. Sunday being reserved for the SRO and their Intercontinental GT eight-hour race. Knowing that Saturday would have a fair amount of free time, IndyCar slash IMS did offer this to IMSA, and I know that they are waiting to hear back. Uh, whether that is something they would want to take. How would this work from a SRO happiness standpoint? I don't exactly know. Uh, we already have one endurance series playing on that event, but I guess in this... two. Two. Really? What am I missing on the other one? Well, be- because the uh, if I'm right, GT World Challenge America as a separate race is running within the same race. Okay. Well, I apologize. And, and it's gonna be, so it's going to be the third. It's a th- am I right? It's their first endurance race, a three hour race for the GT world challenge America. Those cars can then opt to either complete the eight hours or stop there at three hours and call the result for the U S series. I think that's right. We've seen it before at Bathurst back in the day with the Australian GT championship, but I think that's what I understand the way that race is going to run. Gotcha. Well, I guess I should say second organization, endurance racing, fair enough, sports yep. car uh, organization there. So I don't know how the SRO would feel about that, but I would say uh, Roger Penske owns the joint and will probably say you're going to have whoever <laughs> we decide <laughs> is on the calendar. So I think it would be great. Um, what I don't know is whether this is something that a lot of people would show up for. Um, the the May IndyCar race and the road course there is, is air quote, well attended. You know, I don't know what the numbers are, but it's five ten thousand 10,000 people, something like that. It's not terrible. It's not great. My guess would be, with folks probably really starved for racing, assuming that everything happens as intended here in October, I, I really have a hard time predicting whether folks would turn out en masse to watch IndyCar, SRO, and IMSA on the road course there. Because if we do go back to racing, say, in August, Graham, I think it's going to be so exhausting because I think every weekend is just going to be it's yeah. going to be nonstop. I don't know if this turns out to be something that is viewed as unique. And, oh, my goodness, we have to get there and see it and be a part of it and so on. Uh, or if... Again, talking in theory, we're now two-ish months, two and a half months into nonstop racing all day, every day. If folks are going to be like, I just don't care. (laughs) I just don't care. So the hope would be that IMSA could join in, 
maybe they could start a new tradition of IndyCar and IMSA sharing the weekend together. I don't know if the SRO folks are going to hang around for more than a year, as I've mentioned multiple times on the show. Uh, but I think it's very likely we're just going to have to wait and see, to borrow Graham's favorite phrase, a hashtag <laughs> wait and see if, Indy, if IMSA will accept the invite. Yeah, I'll add into that, by the way, question from Jerry Robertson that says current crisis forcing IndyCar to run a third race in IMS in the fall gives him an idea for the future involving IMSA. Please tell me it's plausible or practical. Make the fall IndyCar road course race permanent. Make the May road race at IMS an IMSA race. Uh, move the May mid-Ohio date to September. The weather should be better in north-central Ohio in that part of the year than in May. Look, it does give an opportunity for a little bit of a mental reset, but, but let's not forget either huge pressures on the organisers of these championships at the moment just to get anything over the line. Um, but I don't know, are you are you sensing that anything beyond this year, people look at a sea change? Or are you sensing that what the, um, the, the current prevailing thought is, MP, is to get back out there and get back to the status quo? Clearly... There's been a different choice made by the WEC, but for different reasons, uh, going back to a calendar-based format rather than a winter-based format. But are you sensing that anybody is having radical thoughts at the moment right now? I haven't heard anything on the the radical end. I know we, I think we mentioned this last week, maybe the week before, but I'll, I'll reiterate quickly because I think it's worth mentioning again. Among my greatest hopes for our global return to motor racing is that the willingness to compromise and share and bend and give a little bit and say, okay, yeah. So this was supposed to be, you know, in this reference, we just mentioned the intercontinental GT three race at IMS. This is supposed to be the one and only, you know, sanctioning body competing at that event. Well, now the owners of the circuit have said, well, we're going to insert our race uh, a race to make up one that we've had to cancel just to help ourselves. Oh, and hey, we might do this for IMSA as well. My hope is that this willingness to play, to help and accommodate and do some creative things that might never happen, I hope that extends beyond yeah. this crash of scheduling. So that's my among my greatest hopes is that when we do get back to racing, we know that everyone's going to have to compromise, and we as fans should benefit from that, getting things we would otherwise never get on a, on a calendar at whatever event. I would just hope that this, this isn't a one-time thing and isn't viewed as an exception. We're going to go back to isolating ourselves and screw you. We're going to be our own selves and stay away. I just hope that this spirit continues because I think it could usher in a really positive era for motor racing in general and maybe get more folks interested you know right now what what's the common complaint we hear most of all too many series too many classes too many things well how often do we get a question or submitted it's not weekly but it's at least a couple times a month of hey could you guys explain the classes (laughs) in gt racing because i have no clue what all this nonsense is about and it's just the most valid thing too much too many it's i would say to everyone's benefit among sanctioning bodies to think oh well you know what instead of asking people to try and attend 413 different events per year 
let's get together. Let's let's do these little, you know, family reunions. I realize open wheel cars and tin tops and prototypes and whatever stock cars. I realize that they aren't, you know, true blood relations, but we are all in the same family. Uh, let's try and get together, do some uh, some family cookouts, throw a couple of these odd things that don't necessarily fit, throw them on the same calendar. Go do this. I bet you racing picks up. Racing has more fans, more viewers, more money coming into it if we're doing that compared I to com- isolationism. completely agree. Completely agree. I'll tell you something else. Should IMS do that and should IMSA do that for that race meeting, that would put it on put it onto a list of races I don't have to be at that I might quite like to be there. Um, if I'm doing that as a professional, you can bet your bottom dollar that there's an awful lot of fans and their families that would think the same, uh, that are in a, a rather more geographically convenient uh, position to be able to do so. Just do it. Come on. Let's, let's, let's grab opportunity out of adversity. Let's see what happens when we break bread with people that perhaps we've been at odds with for a number of years. Let's see what happens when we try to bring things together rather than finding excuses to screw people over on calendars, on whatever it is. Let's make it happen. Come on, guys. It, it's a sport. Let's put the sport back in sport cars. Mm. All right, brother. Uh, what else? Any more? Are we done? Or What do you think? We're going to take it home with... Uh, Tom Firth, who asks, how big is the leap from DPI to LMDH? Could we see grandfather DPI, says Tom? Um, Could we, if the situation requires it, have grandfather DPIs alongside the next generation in the event we don't have a huge amount of funding for teams to buy all new chassis by 2022? Hmm. We don't know what the leap is going to be, Tom. What I... I'm curious to learn here as we get regulations is what will the performance equalizer end up being between DPI 2020 and LMDH 2022. So we know right now these motors make 600 ish horsepower, 550, yep. 600 horsepower. So they aren't crazy. These DPIs aren't crazy light. They're also not crazy heavy. They make good downforce. It's not insane downforce, though. Tires are wide, but not outrageously wide. What are they thinking for LMDH? So, again, we know some of the things. They've mentioned it, right? We want greater movement towards road car styling. So, bodywork will look more roady. What does that mean? Often when you say we're going farther towards road car looks, you take away the purity of aerodynamic design. So do we give up downforce? Do they do things beneath the car that they aren't doing now to generate more downforce? That would be smart. So that way you could play with the top side, make it more of just a visually appealing creature, instead of something that also has to play a significant role in downforce creation and use the underside, create true underwings to compensate. If they do that, well, that's great. That would be really smart. But the biggest area, I would say, that is just a pure question mark. Coming back to performance, 
could we grandfather, not grandfather, beyond downforce and grip? Uh, that's going to be the big question. Again, uh, if they do go towards roadie-ish styling, if they don't compensate with downforce elsewhere, then that's going to be a performance loss. But what about the motor side? So we know that they are meant to go hybrid. Great. Got it. What's the number they're looking at? Uh, it's fi- under 50 horsepower. So that's not a lot. Well, okay. On the surface, you'd say, well, if you're adding an extra 50 horsepower, shouldn't they go faster? They should. We know that the engine manufacturer, I'm sorry, the prototype manufacturers, the engine, the car companies, Jesus, the car companies responsible for these factory DPIs have been very hesitant to dial up the base horsepower of the internal combustion engines. Uh, the costs involved is really an error. That's where they've been pushing back because there have been calls. Hey, we need to get to 700 horsepower. And they've said, no, not a chance. Ain't happening. Um, the general goal that I keep hearing is to stay in the same internal combustion power range we're at right now. Okay, well, if that happens, and that's that's a good thing, that could allow LMDHs to play with grandfather DPIs. We're adding that approximate 50 horsepower electric bump. That's great. So maybe they can go a little bit faster. Well, but then there's the other question of what kind of net gain are we going to receive based on the weight? And we have yet to hear of a lightweight hybrids uh, kinetic energy recovery system. I've yet to hear of that being something that doesn't just rob the overall performance uh, unless we're talking about a massive electric boost, as we watched and enjoyed for many years, Graham, in the WC and LMP1 hybrid. So since we are only talking 50-ish horsepower, I don't know the weight of the system. They've yet to say who they're going with. But if you factor in the need for mechanical assembly, a motor generator unit, and a battery, and any of the other associated electronics, wiring, etc., to go with it. A part of me believes we're going to be look, staring at a bit of a wash. Hey, we got 50 extra horsepower. Great, but that extra weight has made it come out to almost zero in terms of on-track performance. So a couple of questions here to answer first before we could say whether the performance gap between LMDH and DPI Uh, would be such that they cannot play together, or if need be, they could. And we could go to some sort of grandfathered thing for whatever period of time. I love this question, Tom, by the way, because it is a very, it's very sharp in terms of timing. We saw, and we've, you know, you wrote about a Graham, uh, about Porsche saying, hey, we're definitely looking into DPI 2.0 slash LMDH. And we know that there's tons of other manufacturers that have said the same, done the same, uh, or we've written about it. Where are we going to stand with them after we get through this shutdown? What are what is the American economy like? What is the economy of the various manufacturers uh, on an international level who are interested? We'll have to see. Uh, I'm confident, Tom, that LMDH is going to go forward as a formula. I think the fact that it is meant for 2022 is a positive. If it were meant for next year, we would have already read about it being delayed at least a year. Um, 
but I think the fact that it's far enough away that it could still go forward uh, without any huge issue there. Um, big question, though, is what are the manufacturers going to look like? What is the economy going to look like uh, to possibly change or limit their interest uh, as it was standing just a month to two months ago? So a lot of more questions, my friend, than answers right now, but... I do look forward to answering them for you. And we've got... No, Graham. You've got me now. Hey, we got you now. All right. There you go. Well... I think that's it for this week, my friend. Um, You want to take us home? Well, let's do it. Uh, We've preached enough, haven't we? Stay safe, everybody. Stay well. Listen to what you've been asked to do. Uh, Keep the questions pouring in, and then P and I will keep putting the time aside uh, to get through them. Lots of other good, fun stuff coming on racer.com on dailysportscard.com um, and across the social media channels where we're trying to keep you all entertained uh, through these trying times for yourselves and for your families hug them close treasure the time you've got for right now and join us next week on the weekend sports cars with thanks again to Cooper Tires to the Justice Brothers and of course to Bushu's Hammer Emporium